0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers, and just plain old common sense Americans to the one and only Conservative Review Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz back in the house for another terrific day of broadcasting here on this Thursday, October 8th, Independent conservative news and views, and that's always what you're looking for when you want to hear about debate analysis, because Republicans will circle the wagons around Republicans, Democrats will do the same, but you want a truly independent perspective. And folks, you know what's interesting? Today, I just realized October 8th is the, what is it, sixth anniversary October 8th, 2014 was the day that we had the first confirmed death in this country of Ebola during that first round of Central Western Africa Ebola outbreak. Just figured I'd share that with you. That was a time not to panic, but to say, hey, this is serious. It's a very deadly virus. But also, because it's deadly, it's rare and doesn't transmit easily. So that's really where government could play a large role in containing it. And if they failed to do so, it's something that you could complain about. What this administration has failed to do from day one, and Trump is now doing it more because of Scott Atlas, but Mike Pence is still kind of stuck on stupid, is to demonstrate to the American people that this is bigger than the other side. So Kamala Harris kept saying, you know how many people got it? 7 million people, and she said 7 million people now have a pre-existing condition. He should have looked her in the eye and said, I'll do one better for you. 60 million people likely have it, according to the World Health Organization. 750 million people globally have gotten it. And overwhelmingly, they're asymptomatically, mildly symptomatic, a cold, a flu. Very few are going to have you know, some sort of condition developed from it. As do the flu and other viruses, by the way, where there's just a small percentage of people that have complications. They have failed to deliver that single point that this is broadly not a problem. It's going to get people, not like, oh, there's an outbreak. We found some cases. Like, yeah. It's like saying I found cases of the cold. And the people that do die from it It is what it is. It's sad, but there's nothing we can do about that. And Kamala Harris failed to present a plan. What we didn't have last night was a a final debate over the actual science and data of the virus. They're both on the same side. I'll get back to that in a minute. Okay, I'm going to get back to that In a minute or two, we're going to have a special guest on today to go through some of the latest data trends. Another terrific writer at rationalground.com. But I first just want to go back to give an overall view of the debate. Overall, Mike Pence, as obviously I'm sure you saw, anyone who watched the debate, I think did a terrific job. I always felt he was a good debater. I don't like him so much for governing because I think he's a little bit too much just GOP establishment mindset. But he did a great job. If you factor in and just allow for the fact that he already made his bed on the coronavirus issue and several others, then unfortunately he already staked out liberal ground on that, thereby taking away some of his most potent weapons. He did as good of a job as he could being feisty on that issue, and then certainly the other issues that were more in his wheelhouse, the traditional economic issues, the energy issues, did a great job just slamming her. And unlike with Trump, where he allowed his kind of rudeness to get in the way and overshadow the points, he really did corner her. And notice again, just like with Biden, she couldn't and refused to vouch for their position on the Green New Deal, on on lockdowns, I mean, even the virus with lockdowns, on the Supreme Court. On raising taxes, even though she said he was going to raise taxes, then had to walk away from it. Notice how if we actually have a substantive debate about policy. And the Republican officials, whether it's Trump, Pence or anyone else, actually stakes out the conservative ground and articulates it well, they run away. And by the way, run away from things that they openly and very readily stand behind when they're in front of a left-wing audience, but they cannot hold that ground when standing before the broad array of American people, the general electorate. So to me, that was the takeaway. Harris, she was the one who was rude with the just nauseating faces, and she just has a very punchable face. But the the biggest thing, again, that bothered me was that even where he did a good job like beating her at her own game, but that wasn't the right game to play. So for example, Pence had a great line, if you remember where he said, you know, actually notice you haven't said what your plan is on coronavirus because it's awfully similar to our thing. But then again, that's what Biden has always done. He's made his living off of plagiarism. I thought that was a good line. The problem is, they were basically drag racing who could be more pro-crap. So, basically, she came down to contact tracing, testing, and vaccine. So, Pence rightfully said, well, dude, that's what we've been doing. But the point is, it's not working. Now, very few people are legitimately dying early from this. But both of them are saying the spread in cases are a problem. The case themic is a problem. Well... If that's the case, this doesn't stop it, because nothing stops it. That was the problem. The line he needed in this debate was the message of Dr. Scott Atlas, which is that lockdowns are a luxury of the rich. When they talk about income inequality and racial stuff, I I, I was jumping out of my seat that he didn't shove on her the data from very prestigious organizations on how many black businesses and black workers have been put out of work as a result of the lockdowns. Notice that Kamala Harris, again, just like with Biden, almost started hitting him on like the schools are shut down, like this whole thing is out of control. She almost hit him on the lockdowns. She would not like, and not only that, um, Susan Page, who was kind of obnoxious, but I thought was pretty good in asking the question, well, hey, what's your plan? Is it more lockdowns? Is it, you know, mandatory mask wearing? I thought for sure the mask wearing she would reiterate. She did not. She ran away from that. She distracted. I mean, this is where he could have cornered her. But again, it, it was just very frustrating. But look, um, in general, he really did a good job. If you allow for the fact that he wasn't going to reinvent the wheel on the bad liberal policies he has already staked out on several issues, I think he did a good job. I mean, obviously, he once again repeated the line of, oh, I did more on criminal justice reform, and you know, somehow that Kamala Harris threw too many blacks behind bars, and oh, God. like. But otherwise, he cornered her very well unpacking the courts, Um, Hopefully it will bear fruit. Normally the VP debate is meaningless. We'll see what the ratings are. But I I think, you know, again, I will fight him tooth and nail if he tries to run in 2024. We could do a lot better than that. But in terms of the debate, he did a good job. He did a good job. Um, The biggest issue, and I have a long article out today on this, is the fracking. I I was honestly shocked. So the other issues she just ran away from wouldn't commit with the fracking like she went out of her way to say he will not shut down fracking like she wouldn't say he will not pack the court she just wouldn't answer the question um i was floored by that meaning she actually brought it up before pence even mentioned it before pence even accused her pence just said in general look he admitted he's gonna raise taxes and then he talked about deregulation in general he didn't mention fracking. She on her own said, I want to say, we, Joe Biden, let me make this very clear. He's not going to, you know, um, end fracking. And then obviously Pence pointed out, dude, he, the guy looked a kid in the eye at a town hall and said, let me say this. We will end fossil fuels in America. Um, and Harris did the same thing. We will end fracking, she said, at CNN's uh, climate change town hall. It, I believe it was September 5th. 2019, I think all the candidates were there, Democrat primary candidates, if you want to look it up. It's a short video. It's uh, circulating on the web. And so then Pence cornered her, and then, you know, but, but then the moderator asked her about the Green New Deal, and she said, first I want to say, she went out of her way, he will not end fracking. That tells you that is a potent issue that the administration needs to push more. It is probably the most unsung miracle of this administration that people don't know about. If you look at the degree of oil production, natural gas production, oil and natural gas um, exportation, the refinery capabilities, it's unbelievable. We have become an energy superpower. It has been responsible for massive job growth. Massive reduction in prices of so many goods that would be so much higher. Tax revenue to much needed areas like New Mexico that are very poor. And then foreign policy giving us the leverage over China, Russia, Iran. Remember Iran was Soleimani and the Iran deal, they threatened an oil crisis. It fell flat because we're now crushing everyone And not just oil and natural gas production, but downright exporting and and shielding the world under our umbrella from Iran or, you know, other bad regimes holding us hostage over oil and gas. That is a story that needs to get out more. They need to say that story. They need to demonstrate how Harris and Biden and their policies every day are encumbering us in courts, in the states, blocking our pipelines, um, the ability to deliver this gas, to refine it. There's a very good story to be told there. And I think even I was shocked at how much she ran away from that. I think that is a very big story to emerge from the debate. But again, the broader issue is that if you actually speak facts on policy and assertively, they cannot hold their ground. And there's no reason the virus can't be that way, which is why what we really need is a national debate between Fauci and Atlas. That would be awesome. And the public needs that. Because that's the problem. Because Pence has, with this stupid task force, and and, and Burks is still going like an animal. She's like talking about the Jews in New York now. I mean, that needs to be disbanded. So they already staked out this ground. So the moderator, Susan Page, talked... As if like it's a premise like there are people getting these cases like, dude, my zip code has just gotten slammed. There's almost nobody in the hospitals. I have like 10 friends and acquaintances who have this now. It ranges from nothing to a cold to sometimes some quirky muscle aches or one or two people a loss of uh, sense of smell. That's what it is. And she got up there and said 7 million people now have a pre-existing condition. I was like, "Dude, it's actually 60 million people then by by that calculation." That's the thing. The more people realize as many people get this as get the the cold, the more this falls apart. So that's the point I want to make. By the way, there were some funny things like the moderator was like hurricanes are getting wetter. Did you hear that line? Hurricanes are getting wetter. I mean, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's on par with um, Redfield's like, you know, masks as a vaccine. Hurricanes are getting wetter. What the hell does that mean? So are we going to put a mask on the hurricanes so they don't spew the droplets? I mean, it's just mentally ill. Fires are getting hotter. The air is getting crisper. The floods are getting wetter. The wind is getting windier. I mean, it's just like these people are retarded. And they talk about how they follow the science. I mean, the hurricane thing really is mentally ill. Because, I mean, you guys remember like yesterday. Remember the early 2000s, late 90s? Or late 90s, they said, we're going to have massive hurricanes. And we went for like a 15-year drought. With no hurricanes. This year, we have a lot very few that, you know, we didn't have any major disruption like we had a few years ago. But then before that, we had nothing since the big Katrina Rita year. It is literally wrong. And the fires, by the way, you know, today, October 8th, is the anniversary of the 1871 Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, like we never had fires before. But again, He did a great job, but it just demonstrates that if he actually um, staked out the conservative ground and had been doing so, the landscape of the debate would have shifted. Obviously, the debate on coronavirus is going to be on the Democrat talking points because Republicans and Pence have fueled it for six months, seven months. So, yeah, they're going to agree to it. So now that we're on the topic of the virus. I know there is a lot going on on many other issues. I did want to get to the courts if I had time, which certainly ties back into the debate. Um, What's going on in in Wisconsin? I mean, what is it? Wawatosa? I never even heard of this town and I'm pretty good in geography. Tiny town. Don't tell me this is a huge city. And we have rioting there. So again, the BLM is going to get you anywhere and everywhere. This is not just large cities. This is a huge problem. Basically, we are laying down the premise that so long as you are sufficiently or have a sufficient amount of melanin in your skin tone, uh, you could do no wrong. You could shoot, you could threaten, you could draw a weapon, and police cannot shoot you. Um, That is very scary. And again, that is ground that... I I thought Pence did pretty good to the extent that he already laid his own bed with this stupid criminal justice deform, but he needed to give Ron DeSantis his message and go on offense. Make this much more about. Wait a minute. First of all, we don't even know what happened with Floyd. You know, let's allow for the fact that something wrong was done, but you know, talk about the medical examiner. But you know, let's say you don't want to get involved in that. He really needed to pivot to jailbreak. Um, and just the fact that there are so many innocent people. To me, the biggest shock is that Republicans are, you know, they measure their success by how much pandering they do to the groups that Democrats want to pander to. But the funny thing is they have the greatest talking point on this, which doesn't require pandering and could actually be principled. And that is there are likely 1500 or so excess black homicide deaths this year over the last several years as a result of the BLM agenda, police standing down, the unchecked undeterred crime. And of course, you know, instead he goes after Kamala Harris for being too tough of a prosecutor, you know, for reasons only Allah knows. But on the virus, well, there is a woman I would want on that debate stage to give the other side of the story. And speaking of Ron DeSantis in Florida, our next guest, Jennifer Cabrera, along with her husband, Len, is editor of the Alachua Chronicle. It's a local digital newspaper In uh, out of Gainesville, Florida, on her personal Twitter account every day, which, by the way, you must follow. It's a a must follow on Twitter. J. Haskin Cabrera. So it's J-H-A-S-K-I-N-S-C-A-B-R-E-R-A. We'll link to it in show notes. She charts the actual dates of Florida's reported COVID deaths as soon as they come out showing that reported deaths are always spread out over multiple months, sometimes as many as 70 days. We're going to talk about that. She is one of our contributors at rationalground.com and writes on a number of issues with PCR testing, the COVID count, the mass studies, the real mechanical work that if it actually got out to the public and if people like Pence and that dumb task force would actually be disseminating this message, people would have a very different perspective on the virus so with us is jennifer thanks so much for joining us for the first time
1: hey thanks for having me
0: yeah i've actually wanted to have you on for a while you put out great work both on your uh own website alachua chronicle as well as rationalground.com let's start off with the pcr testing so obviously the world is panicking over a test it's literally the tyranny of a test. I have in my zip code where four thousand people at one site got tested because there was a whole, there was an outbreak in a college, and everyone went crazy. And you know, everyone I know is either asymptomatic or literally Jennifer, less than a cold. I mean, you know, you know a cold like you know the two days of miserable sore throat and then the two days of you know, the constant running, and then the two days of the stuffiness, you know, the full-blown thing, it's like, no, it's like a partial thing with some quirky assortment of symptoms, you know, maybe some muscle aches, maybe some get a, a loss of smell. What, how bad are we overstating? How badly are we overstating the extent of cases with the PCR testing? So go through the whole shebang of the mechanics of how it works and how it's flawed and what we need to be doing instead.
1: Sure. So we all think of these tests as they tell you whether you have the disease, right? I mean, that's what a test is supposed to do. But somewhere along the line, the decision was made to use PCR testing for COVID. Now, I believe I PCR testing is really a, a surveillance tool because what it does is it takes a sample from, you know, way up high in your your nasal cavity. And then it, do, it, it does report. Progressive cycles of doubling whatever it finds in that sample until it detects enough to call a positive We have decided in America generally to d- double this amount of the sample thirty eight to forty times. What happens with that is that the very tiniest fragment of RNA from the virus that could be from you have been exposed to it but you it, you've never been sick or It could be up to 90 days ago, you had a mild infection and maybe didn't even realize it. That gets picked up when you multiply, when you double it 38 to 40 times. We have multiple studies showing that the, if this doubling number is what's called the cycle threshold, like I said, we're currently using 38 to 40. If it goes above 34, then that amount of, that virus is, almost certainly not infectious. They have done, they've cultured the virus. And what they found is that if, if it triggered positive over 34 cycles, it wasn't infectious. It wouldn't grow in a, in a culture. So we know that 34 is the max it should be set at and probably lower. I mean, there's probably some, some people say it could be as low as you know 20 to 25, 27, somewhere in there is, is the number that we should cut off a positive test at. But here and many places in the world, we're cutting it off at 40. That just picks up a ton of people that aren't sick at all. Also, labs have access to this number, the cycle threshold at which the test became positive. But it's not divulged to patients. It doesn't show up on your, your test report or anything. So, so I think the first thing that needs to be done is, is more transparency. If, if you get a positive test, you should demand the cycle threshold at which that became positive. Mm. And But anyway, we're so we're using these super sensitive tests that, like I say, I think they're they're designed for surveillance. Rem- remember public health just wanted, uh, initially, this started out. They just wanted to know how far is it spread? Where are we seeing it? Where is it popping yep. up? And that is entirely different from where it turned out, where if you had a positive test, you are not quarantined for 14 days, you have to stay home from school, you have to stay home from work, you get locked into an isolation dorm at your university. So so this is all being used entirely different, I think, than it was originally intended to be used. But it it cascades through the system because we also test everybody who comes into a hospital. Well, the same oversensitive test is used. So you go into a hospital with a broken leg, let's say, but, but this test picks up that you have some some COVID somewhere in your a, a tiny fragment of the virus in your nasal cavity. Now you're a COVID hospitalization, and everybody freaks out. COVID hospitalizations going up, you know, spiking. Well, we don't know anything about those if we don't know the cycle threshold at which they test the positive. But it's worse because again, every one of those people that dies is a COVID death. And I got confirmation yesterday from the state of Florida that all deaths that occur within 30 days of a positive COVID test are considered a COVID death unless one of the exclusion criteria are met. So, you know, they're supposed to not count it if it was trauma or suicide or something. But so you have people in long-term care, we're testing all of them. So over time, just from the possibility of false positives, if you're getting tested every two weeks, there's a good chance you've had a positive COVID test at some point. The the median stay, uh,
0: Jennifer, the median stay of those who wind up dying, this is the median stay is something like six months of those who wind up dying in a long uh, term care home. So this epidemic has been going on and these policies have been going on for now a half a year. (laughs) So, you know, 55,000 people in America die a year. Many of them are going to be, obviously, in long-term care facilities. So you're telling me that it's not just the fact that the virus is not deadly, you know, 99.5% of the time, it's that... We now have this whole cohort that's even beyond those who legitimately had it but certainly recovered it or didn't really have problems, that is just totally bogus. And that's a COVID death too.
1: Right. And that's we're seeing that in the median age of COVID death is 79. That's also median life expectancy in, in the in the United States. And what we're seeing is that people at the end of their lives are getting positive COVID tests and are being counted as COVID. We're just counting almost, I won't say everything because certainly there are some negative tests. There are certain, but, but here's what's happened. Even a do, an, an honest doctor who says, you know, yeah, there was a positive COVID test, but, but it had nothing to do with the death and they don't put it on the death certificate. There are bureaucrats at the state level that are going back and matching every death certificate with their list of positive COVID tests. And counting them as COVID deaths. And that's part of why we're getting all these super delayed death reports, you know, back from June, July. A lot of that is death certificate matching. Those so, those people never, you ask their families, they didn't die of COVID. They died of something else, but they had a COVID test. Okay,
0: so, so that's where I wanted to go next. We heard about this for months already. We all knew this was going on, that anyone who would have a random test. And they test positive. They didn't even know about it. The family didn't even know about it. They clearly died of Alzheimer's or they were in hospice care for cancer or whatever. And, you know, they were expected to die and they died when they were expected to die. And suddenly they see, you know, oh, it's a COVID death. That was definitely happening all along. And, and we knew while we certainly disagreed with it and we we pointed it out here very early on. We knew it was the result of this carte blanche CDC guidance that the states picked up on, which is pretty much anyone who has a COVID positive test, you know, with few exceptions, they're going to code that as a death. And we, we've we seen that with homicide, suicide, drug overdoses, uh, motorcycle accidents, even though they weren't supposed to count it. But we've certainly seen it. But what you're alluding to, and I want you to expand on it, if you have some data you could provide us with, because I've seen some of our buddies have put this out, but I just don't remember the data offhand, that... Basically, there was a certain percentage of backfill deaths that were happening every day. You know, it was whatever it was, 15%. But then suddenly, the last month or two, the percentage of deaths that are laundered from the past in a given day seems to be like the majority of them. It's exponentially higher than before. So, you know, we could allow for the fact that, look, you know, some people... It's not like there's a, a meter that, like, you know, puts it out on a dashboard the second someone dies. So, legitimately, some people take longer. They have autopsies. Um, so, you know, you could have backfill deaths. Oh, you know, like that guy was actually a COVID death, and some of them could have even been legitimate COVID deaths, not made up just because they tested positive. But you wouldn't expect to see over time a much greater percentage of backfill deaths, right?
1: Well, yes and no. So there's two things going on. One is, one is this, this you know, death certificate matching, which can go back however far the pile is they're working on. But also, so in Florida, which is what I pay close attention to, our peak for deaths was between July 25th and August 5th. So as they continue to work through their, their backlog from that peak, we're going to get a bigger lag. It's, I don't think it's a bigger lag in reporting deaths in that I don't think recent deaths, real COVID deaths are, are, you know, not being reported. I think it's just that they had a big backlog from the peak and the farther we get from the peak, the bigger the lag is. But on top of that, my husband, Len, did an analysis looking at the, the, the records in the caseline data that were just recently marked um, as COVID deaths. And, one kind of key to whether it's death certificate matching is that the hospitalized and emergency room fields say unknown or are blank. Now, if somebody dies of COVID, chances are very good that they're a known hospitalization. It should have yes in the hospitalized line because we should know if, if you die in a hospital from COVID, that, that should all be filled out. If you died at home of a heart attack, but had a posit- or died in the nursing home of a fall or whatever and there's a COVID test, then, you know, they may not know whether you're hospitalized because maybe you weren't. But it's, it's gone up in July, 52% of the cases and 25% of the deaths had unknown. And so we've just got this whole list of, of positive tests that we don't really know anything about these people. And they're just not going through and just marking them as deaths.
0: So wait a minute. I mean, it, based on what you're saying, the Democrats are very much obsessed with the death number. I mean, last night Kamala Harris there was their big line 210,000 deaths. And that sounds like a lot. And for a while, a lot of, you know, our rational ground folks have felt that it's more in line with maybe like about 130 or so now it's very hard to pinpoint you have to do a process of elimination with CDC all cause deaths and you know you look at the lockdown deaths and and that's a whole thing and you know Kyle talks about that a lot and some of our our other buddies but what i'm looking at here that really scares me is like you said that senior population those people in their 80s and 90s that you know especially in a state like Florida you know you have a large percentage of them it is an elderly state and, you know, the, that's the way of life. You're going to have every day, irrespective of what else is going on in the world, people dying. Of all different causes, mainly old age or some form of that. Whether it's cancer or heart disease or neurological things. And you're basically, you know, now that we know that there is this obsession to jack up the the death number. And that is, you know, really everything behind what's fueling their power trip and their, control, their social control measures, how much could we trust that they're not doing everything they can to comb through every death certificate to try to just totally, you know, fudge the numbers?
1: Well, obviously they are. And, and one pushback I get a lot is, well, you know, Governor DeSantis isn't trying to run up his death numbers, so this can't be happening in Florida. But it clearly is. And so this is where somebody like Governor DeSantis can make a big difference because he uh, several months back, he he told Florida hospitals, he said, I want to know who's in your hospital with a primary diagnosis of COVID versus somebody who has a positive test, but is primarily in there for something else. And we now have. A dashboard where you can look at and you can tell who's in there with a primary diagnosis of COVID. And then that gets completely separated from all the, oh, you had a positive test sometime and you're in the hospital, people. Two different metrics. Why can't he tell them to do the same thing? Sure, keep counting them the way Burks told you to count them, any positive COVID death, any positive test is a COVID death. Fine. But separate that out from people who died with a, you know, the top line on their death certificate says COVID. It's, it's pretty simple to do. It's, it's a direction that he could give, like, sure, keep counting the metrics, like the CDC says, but let's also look at this other metric. It's something that he could really make a big difference in.
0: No, exactly, exactly. I mean, it would be literally like during cold season, counting everyone who has a cold, which is going to be a lot of people, and then counting that as a death. Um, how much have you seen from the other side of the ledger? So in other words, not the case where you have a BS positive test, but the opposite, I've heard of cases where someone is negative, they test them and they're negative, but but they feel they have symptoms, the, the, the symptoms are COVID-like symptoms, and they count that as a COVID-like hospitalization and subsequently they die, it's a COVID death. Now, so... To begin with, I didn't focus on this side because I actually thought that that was more accurate because to me the testing is has some BS components as you talked about. So to me like, you know, if you see someone has ARDS and they have lung problems, so to me that sounds actually a lot more accurate. But then I started hearing about situations like this. It's not like, you know, a 65-year-old that really wasn't slated to die randomly comes in with COVID, clearly having that, you know, what you saw in New York City with a lot of people in March. All right, you know, let's say you didn't get a test, or maybe even if you got a negative test for whatever reason, which would be kind of funny given how sensitive they are, you put that down as a COVID death. But I'm hearing you have seniors in hospice that are to end the final days of their life. So you have a cancer patient the final day of their life. Well, Jennifer, what tends to happen? They have trouble breathing, okay? So they have trouble breathing, which they always do, and they test them, and the test, which is stupid to begin with, why are you testing them? But they test them, and the test is negative. And they count that as a COVID Well, because, look, that's that's ours. That, that's a major symptom. It's a lethal symptom of COVID, right?
1: Right. I, I, and to be fair to Florida, I don't... I know there's other states that count what they call persons under investigations or whatever, just based on symptoms. I don't think Florida's doing that. I do think we get... Uh, death certificates where a doctor says, regardless of testing, this looked like a COVID death to me, and that's fine. But but at least for death certificate matching, we're going on, on positive tests, which, like you say, is probably more bogus than going on symptoms. Um, but the hospice issue is interesting because it's a very small sample set. But in my county, we've had 61 deaths. 25 of them were in hospice already. mm. So, wow. you know, and, and, these, and these numbers are constantly published as, oh, my God, you know, keep in mind, it's a very small number. So it's always like two more deaths today. But, th- but that's more, more than a third. It's
0: just, it's, it's, that's it's more than tough. a third. I mean, they were downright in hospice. So right, that, that's a different yeah. level than LTC. I mean, hospice is literally where you go to die. Um, it's a matter of days, weeks, not much more than that. And. Yeah, I mean, because Jennifer, I'm glad you gave that to me because I've been dying to get that data point nationwide. We're always talking about LTC. I would love to know how many of those LTC deaths were downright getting hospice treatment.
1: The point my county direct health director makes, and it's not a popular one, but the people in general. Now, there's always a small, there is a definitely a small number of people, and I don't know why we haven't spent more time. Investigating this, but there are people that get the cytokine storm and they just overreact to COVID and their body, you know, yep. flips out and they For die. Sure. That's For a sure. real thing. Okay, not saying any of this is a hoax, but the, in general, the people that are dying from COVID or being marked as COVID deaths are not the people that you're seeing out and about in grocery stores. They are people that are very frail that are homebound or in nursing, skilled nursing, not even generally in assisted living. They're almost always in skilled nursing or in hospice. They're not well, they're frail. And there's what, you know, we like to look around us and say, you know, oh my God, you know, X percent of the people that I see in this grocery store could die of COVID, but it's not true. It's it's, the people that are dying from COVID are the ones you don't see because they're not out in public. Um, They're morbidly obese. They have, Lifelong disabilities. There's there's almost always something else going on when somebody dies of COVID.
0: So, so Jennifer, let me ask you this question then. You're in Florida. Um, again, lots of elderly people. Here's something that I don't understand the other side could never answer. And that is this. Where is... Most of the deaths on a given day we're seeing are elderly. And and you've put that out many days. There were some days where you showed that, you know, the median age was downright in the 80s, some days even 92 as high as, as, as the the median age of the deaths in that batch of reporting. So they're they're all, you know, these these are often very old people. So what I don't understand is this. According to them, you have to do something wrong to get COVID. It's because you didn't follow one of their things. You follow the moon dance and the rain dance and all their rituals with the, with the mask uh, uh, religion and and the, the the spacing rituals, and you do their stuff, you're not going to get it, but it's all these people yupping it up. You're spreading it. It's God doesn't exist. There's no natural phenomenon. There has to be a human input that caused a respiratory virus because there could be no other explanation. But what I never understood is even if you want to tell me there's 5% of these people that are irresponsible in their book everyone I know if they're in their 80s and 90s dude they have not left their homes they you know that is a big risk factor you know you could say in march February, New York, people were caught by surprise, the nursing homes. But, Jennifer, by now we are months into this. Overwhelmingly, these people, if they're 90 years old, they're not yupping it up at the bars. They are locked down. So according to their logic, how the hell do they even get it?
1: Oh, so, you know, here's the story. The story is that, well, people have to work. In those homes, people have to deliver. And those are young people. And so if young people have parties, that somehow means that young people that work in skilled nursing are going to give it to old people. We've completely lost the narrative on personal responsibility anymore, that if you work in skilled nursing, obviously you shouldn't be going to parties. But the people in, in, in college parties generally don't work in skilled nursing. Yep. It's just kind of we've just we've completely that since the narrative from the top has been everybody is vulnerable. Everybody has to follow the same restrictions. We've completely lost the idea that this is completely age stratified and that we need to protect the vulnerable. And that, as my county health director said, when you're protecting everybody, you're protecting nobody.
0: Let me just posit a uh, overall overview hypothesis with what you're saying with the PCR testing, and I want to see if you agree with this assessment. I, I was thinking last couple of days, we we have to kind of two com- or seemingly competing narratives that our side, the rational ground side, is put putting out. On the one hand, we're saying, "Look, this spreads like wildfire." We always agreed to that. That was our point. It's it's like saying you're stopping a cold or a flu. You have to assume you're going to get it. Most people are going to get it. Um, Certainly the masks don't work that we've seen already everywhere. and therefore it is very prolific and tons of people do have it. It clearly is spreading now, which in our point is actually actually a strong point because we're we're going to be closer to achieving herd immunity and really a much the case fatality rate is really going down, much fewer percentage are having serious problems from it. So it's actually good news. But on the other hand, we're saying, well, you know, a lot of the spread is BS, it's fake. So, is the truth somewhere like this that on the one hand, clearly in a lot of places, it is spreading? It's cyclical every few months. You know, you had in March, then you had it, you know, the Sunbelt wave, and then it was quiet the end of the summer. And then late September, not just in America, but really in Europe, Latin America, Argentina, you know, it's, it's spreading in a lot of places, Israel. Um, but once you have a legitimate spread, And then that creates a panic either to willingly get tested or the requirements, because once you have them, then, oh, you've been exposed, you have to get tested, a school, a business, yada, yada. That's where it's more likely to then produce a pseudo spread on top of the real spread. Is that kind of what's going on, big picture?
1: Probably. I mean, like you said, the truth is somewhere in the middle between, um, you know, everybody gets a positive test. You know, no, None of those people are actually sick and every one of them is sick. It's, it's somewhere in the middle. And definitely what we're seeing at universities is what we call a case stomach because these people are not, in general, sick at all. So you do get people who are sick, clearly, but when you're testing everybody and anybody, you're going to pick up tons of non-infectious um, tests. And in fact... Um, we have a, an analysis at Rational Ground on, on Bayes theorem and false positives, and it's very, it, it's fairly technical, but the way it works is that the lower the prevalence of COVID or anything in a population, the higher the possibility of false positives. So mm. when it is actually raging through the population, you're going to get a, a higher percentage of the tests are going to be true positives. The lower that prevalence in the population gets, the higher the percentage of false positive and the more tests we're doing the higher the number of false positives. So so I think you know people, various people have estimated that right now in the United States we're probably seeing 60,000 false positives a day and that 60,000 people who are being um, isolated, quarantined, forced to stay home from work, forced to not uh, see their family, whatever because uh, because of nothing because of a false test.
0: So the other half of the false positive is an old positive. Let's just call it an old positive where it's picking up dead cells that the person absolutely did have it, but they had it a while ago and they recovered or they were asymptomatic or didn't know, whatever, and now they have their lives shut down for no good reason. Um, Are you hearing stories? I heard of one where I live outside of Baltimore where there was a pregnant woman that had it several months prior and they took the baby away from her because they tested her and she was positive. Are you seeing things like that or other very disruptive consequences of retroactive uh, detection?
1: I don't have any any examples myself, but that, that's a horrendous thing. There's there's no question that the most important time for a baby and its mother are those first few days. It, it, not only that, not only is, is the baby not in danger from the mother's <laughs> positive. but but the in the first few days they get they get antibodies from the mother that's this is how our oh my we're designed gosh. to work this way we're designed for babies and mothers holy to be hell
0: better. i never thought of you that realize, you remember that i never thought yeah. wait, wait a minute wait a minute take this slow these SOBs, wait a minute so because my wife was recently saying like hey i should do you know she's nursing we have we have a a 6 month old and um she was like hey maybe I should donate that my milk cuz you know there's there's studies that have shown it's better than the blood you know even the the um the blood plasma and so under the guise of thinking that this is a threat to a baby and universal testing of pregnant mothers who have no symptoms to a baby that literally is vulnerable to everything else under the sun but this they're taking away oh jeez they're taking away the very it's antibodies good, right? wow yes.
1: This is how our system is designed to work. Mothers pass antibodies to their babies, especially in the first few days after birth, before the true milk comes in. This is this is how it works, and oh. it's, it's insane.
0: Oh man, <laughs> that, that that was nasty. Man, you really made my day. Um, before I let you go, okay. I know another thing you've been following closely. You've been following the scanners of the, you know, the first responders and hospitalizations in Florida could you give us a sense of the following dynamic that I suspect is going on? So on the one hand, we're saying that, you know, case demic is bogus, stop with the cases, look at the hospitalizations. But even on the hospitalization level, what I've noticed is that a lot of the hospitalizations are not really anything as a society we should care about. So... Like what was happening in the worst area, and again, this was very unique to to some of the boroughs in New York City in March. It never replicated itself elsewhere. So, you know, a little bit of Madrid, Lombardy, very few places. There are the exception not the rule, where you seem to have a significant number of people coming in, and this was real because it, it wasn't the depend- You know, because they didn't know to come in. Oh, I have a test. I have COVID. Let me go to the hospital. Uh, they weren't really testing that much yet, so they were coming because they needed to come. They they had trouble breathing. I had an uncle like that. I had an uncle in Long Island, and he got it bad. You know, he called the EMTs, and clearly he had trouble breathing. Um, it wasn't like the first sign of fever or something. No, it it was it was bad. He got it bad. Um, luckily, he went to a place that they didn't put him on a ventilator because I know there are people that had it very treatable like him, but it was serious. and they were put on ventilators and they died. Luckily, he got good treatment. He actually got HCQ and it worked even later on. <laughs> you know, it's one of those cases where it actually worked well into the progression of the virus. He recovered. But I what I see, um and I know anecdotes where I am, is very much what we saw with the President, with Trump. Where it was basically a flu. And under normal circumstances, you never think, unless you have like cancer or something, you're a certain individual that that has certain problems, you're not going to think, oh, I have fever. Oh my gosh, what's the next shoe to drop? I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the hospital. You tough it out. You, you you stay in bed. How many of the people coming in now are kind of subclinical that You know, it's just they're scared, and I can't blame them. You know, they're saying, look, you know, this is going to progress to the next thing, especially if you're older and it's not asymptomatic. You do have a cough, you do have a fever, but a cough and a fever were not really means, um, reason to go to the hospital in the past. How many, how much of that are you seeing?
1: It's hard to say. What I'm actually seeing is. They have a COVID questions that they ask of everybody who gets on an ambulance now. I mean, even if you're picked up at a, at a car accident, you have to answer all the COVID screening questions because they have to know what precautions to take and whether they have to decontaminate the ambulance afterwards and all that sort of thing. But what I found is you get, you get a call that's a, a clearly a heart attack. Clearly, right? But they have shortness of breath. COVID, and I'm not saying they're saying it's COVID. I'm saying that that becomes, you know, a checkbox for, okay. You know, any fever is a COVID alert. Any shortness of breath is a COVID alert. Um, any cough is a COVID alert. They, I, I've seen things where there was a, um, literally a flag on a residence for a chronic cough. I don't know why they put flags on that, whatever. I'm just saying, this is what I heard. Chronic cough for months, right? COVID alert, because she called for a cough. Um, I've also seen where somebody had a positive COVID test five weeks before COVID alert. So, so there's, there's no common sense to this at all. Also keep in mind that skilled nursing facilities, assisted living, they don't like to have sick people there. They, they send them off to as soon as they suspect anything, they send them Mm. off to the hospital, you know, whether or not they're concerned, they just don't want them there because they don't want the, the liability of if something goes wrong, sure. um, you know, then maybe they didn't do enough or if somebody else catches it then they, you know, they just get them out of there. So, so that's for sure going on. But I also hear things like, I, I had to laugh the other day. I heard one, there was like oh, a, a young woman, like 25 year old, she constantly, and here's the call. She's like, she says she has the COVID and she wants to go to the hospital. And the funny thing is that they were kind of going, okay, did she say, could she give any symptoms?
0: <laughs> Cause this has and, got you know, to just, be happening. Jennifer, it's got to be happening because you look at all the surveys on young people and how they're even more spooked than elderly people about it. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with it. They literally think like these like hippy dippy types that are you know that ge- Generation Z or whatever they call them millennials that that are all into this stuff. So I could totally picture them just oh my gosh, I test positive and panicking. And especially if you do have some symptoms, and oh my gosh, I have a fever too. And, and look, if you're elderly and you talked about the nursing home. I don't blame them, given that there is a certain bad path that it could potentially take. And if you want to ward it off early, because getting it early is important, where it literally is nothing more than a flu now, but you want to make sure it doesn't potentially turn into an ARDS, a severe pneumonia. I understand that. But I think as a nation, when it comes to public policy, surveillance, and quantification of numbers, we do have to take that into account that, you can't throw all hospitalizations in a pot um, because you get what I'm saying. This is not just the car accident guy who tests positive. It's a legitimate COVID hospitalization, but it's not like my uncle who it was straight up COVID had a trouble breathing. You know the, that that was that needed intervention and it needed it quick. And, and yeah,
1: right. And this is why I think we're seeing even nationwide, but certainly in Florida, there, there's a floor. To, to COVID hospitalizations, that there's just a level we're not going to get below as long as we're focusing on it the way we are.
0: That's that's an important point because like there are certain areas like Wisconsin, it's legitimately spreading because heck, they didn't get it much before, so everyone's going to get around. I mean, there, no matter what you do, it actually proves our point. Um, but whereas Florida, that relatively recently had substantial saturation, so you'd expect to go down to nothing. I mean, right? You're not hearing much there, but the data is kind of stubborn. It's it's just stubbornly stuck there. And I think between the false positives, not- notional positives, um, just the the baseline panic. We're,
1: ho- we're housing we're housing nursing home patients. You know, just holding them. Um.
0: Oh, you're saying because they don't want to bring them back, right? They um,, right. so they right. they recovered and they could have recovered weeks ago, but they're terrified to put them back in. And again, I understand that. You don't want to repeat the whole you know nursing home fiasco. I get that. But again, when we're talking about data and that data is driving all the policies, you have to be honest. About what is an accurate measure, and you know that all the numbers aren't created equal, and that this is not tantamount to hospitals being overrun by a long shot—not even close, not even flu-like levels. So, great um, presentation as always. I I really wanted our audience to hear from you. You could check out Jennifer's work at Alachua Chronicle. That's A L A C H U A. Um, That's where Gainesville, Florida, is. For those of you not familiar with the area follow her on twitter at j haskin s cabrera we'll link to that obviously rationalground.com is your one-stop shop great content there. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us and looking forward to having you back again. Thanks Daniel, I appreciate it. And there you have it folks, we are out of time, way out of time here. Till tomorrow or perhaps Monday. I might be traveling. I'll let you guys know. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay armed and stay informed.